Hello, everybody, and welcome back. So, I can honestly say that was a long, interesting week of computer issues, but I think, I think I've got it all resolved. So, I've got my computer back, things have been updated, I'm getting to learn all the new updates, but we're ready to move forward again with the story, hopefully with no more interruptions. So, without any more delays, The Crystal Shard, Chapter 5, Someday. Bruner walked up the rocky slope with measured steps, his boots finding the same footholds he always used when he ascended to the high point of the southern end of the Dwarven Valley. To the people of Ten Towns, who often saw the dwarf standing meditatively on the perch, this high column of stones and the rocky ridge that lined the valley had come to be known as Bruner's Climb. Just below the dwarf, to the west, were the lights of Tourmaline, and beyond them, the dark waters of Mare Dalden, spotted occasionally by the running lights of a fishing boat whose resolute crew stubbornly refused to come ashore until they'd landed a knucklehead. The dwarf was well above the tundra floor and the lowest of the countless stars that spotted the sky. The celestial dome seemed polished by the chill breeze that had blown since sunset, and Bruner felt as though he had escaped the bonds of Earth. In this place he found his dreams, and ever they took him back to his ancient home, Mithril Hall, home of his fathers and those before them, where rivers of the shining metal ran rich and deep and the hammers of the dwarven smiths rang out in praise to Moradin and Dumathoin. Bruner was merely an unbearded boy when his people had delved too deep into the bowels of the world and had been driven out by the dark things in dark holes. He was now the eldest surviving member of his small clan, and the only one among them who had witnessed the treasures of Mithril Hall. They had made their home in the rocky valley between the two northernmost of the three lakes, long before any humans, other than the barbarians, had come to Icewind Dale. They were a poor remnant of what had been a thriving dwarven society, a band of refugees beaten and broken by the loss of their homeland and heritage. They continued to dwindle in numbers, their elders dying as much of sadness as old age. Though the mining under the fields of the region was good, the dwarves seemed destined to fade away into oblivion. When ten towns had sprung up, though, the luck of the dwarves rose considerably. Their valley was just north of Bryn Shander, as close to the principal city as any of the fishing villages, and the humans, often warring with each other and fighting off invaders, were happy to trade for the marvelous armor and weapons that the dwarves forged. But even with the betterment of their lives, Bruner, particularly, longed to recover the ancient glory of his ancestors. He viewed the arrival of Ten Towns as a temporary stay from a problem that would not be resolved until Mithril Hall had been recovered and restored. A cold night for so high a perch, good friend, came a call from behind. The dwarf turned around to face Driz Duarden, though he realized that the drow would be invisible against the black backdrop of Kelvin's Carn. From this vantage point, the mountain was the only silhouette that broke the featureless line of the northern horizon. It had been so named because it resembled a mound of purposefully piled boulders. Barbarian legend claimed that it truly served as a grave. Certainly, the valley where the dwarves now made their home did not resemble any natural landmark. In every direction, the tundra rolled on, flat and earthen, but the valley had only sparse patches of dirt sprinkled among broken boulders and walls of solid stone. It 
and the mountain on its northern border were the only features in all of Icewind Dale with any mentionable quantities of rock, as if they had been misplaced by some god in the earliest days of creation. Drizzt noted the glazed look in his friend's eyes. You seek sights that only your memory can see, he said, well aware of the dwarf's obsession with his ancient homeland. A sight I'll see again, Bruner insisted. We'll get there, elf. We do not even know the way. Roads can be found, said Bruner, but not until you look for them. Some day, my friend, Drizzt humored. In the few years that he and Bruner had been friends, the dwarf had constantly badgered Drizzt about accompanying him on his adventure to find Mithril Hall. Drizzt thought the idea foolish, for no one that he'd ever spoken with had a clue of the location of the ancient dwarven home, and Bruner could only remember disjointed images of the silvery halls. Still, the drow was sensitive to his friend's deepest desire, and he always answered Bruner's pleas with the promise of, someday. We have more urgent business at the moment, Driz reminded Bruner. Earlier that day, in a meeting in the dwarven halls, the drow had detailed his findings to the dwarves. You're sure they'll be coming, then? Bruner asked now. Their charge will shake the stones of Kelvin's Carn, Drizzt replied, as he left the darkness of the mountain's silhouette and joined his friend. And if ten towns does not stand united against them, the people are doomed. Bruner settled into a crouch and turned his eyes to the south, toward the distant lights of Bryn Shander. They'll not... The stubborn fools, he muttered. They might, if your people went to them. No, growled the dwarf. We'll fight beside them if they choose to stand together, and pity them to the barbarians. Go to them if you wish, and good luck to you. But nothing of the dwarves. Let us see what grit and guts these fisher folk can muster. Drizzt smiled at the irony of Bruner's refusal. Both of them knew well that the drell was not trusted, not evenly openly welcomed in any of the towns other than Lonelywood, where their friend Regis was spokesman. Bruner marked the drow's look, and it pained him as it pained Drizzt, though the elf stoically pretended otherwise. They owe you more than they'll ever know, Bruner stated flatly, turning a sympathetic eye on his friend. They owe me nothing. Bruder shook his head. Why do you care? He growled. Ever you're watching over the folk that show you no goodwill. What do you owe to them? Drizzt shrugged, hard-pressed to find an answer. Bruder was right. When the drow had first come to this land, the only one who had shown him any friendship at all was Regis. He often escorted and protected the halfling through the dangerous first legs of the journey from Lonelywood around the open tundra north of Mare Dalden and down towards Bryn Shander, when Regis went to the principal city for business or council meetings. They had actually met on such a trek. Regis tried to flee from Driss because he had heard horrible rumors about him. Luckily for both of them, Regis was a halfling, who was usually able to keep an open mind about people and make his own judgments concerning their character. It wasn't long before the two were fast friends. But to this day, 
Regis and the dwarves were the only ones in the area who considered the drow a friend. I do not know why I care, Drizzt answered honestly. His eyes turned back to his ancient homeland, where loyalty was merely a device to gain an advantage over the common foe. Perhaps I care because I strive to be different from people, he said, as much to himself as to Brunner. Perhaps I care because I am different from my people. I may be more akin to the races of the surface. That is my hope, at least. I care because I have to care about something. You are not so different, Brunner Battlehammer. We care lest our own lives be empty. Brunner cocked at a curious eye. You can deny your feelings for the people of Ten Towns to me, but not to yourself. Bah! Brunner snorted. Sure that I care for them. My folk need the trade. <laughs> Stubborn, Driz mumbled, smiling knowingly. And Caterbury, he pressed. What of the human girl who was orphaned in the raid those years ago in Tourmaline? That waif that you took in and raised as your own child? Brunner was glad that the cover of night offered some protection from his revealing blush. She lives with you still, though. Even you would have to admit she's able to go back to her own kind. Might it be, perhaps, that you care for her, gruff dwarf? Ah, oh, shut your mouth, Brunner grumbled. She's a servant wench that makes me life a bit easier. But don't you go getting sappy about her. Stubborn, Driz reiterated more loudly this time. He had one more card to play in this discussion. What of myself, then? Dwarves are not overly fond of the light elves, let alone the drow. How do you justify the friendship you have shown me? I have nothing to offer you in return but my own friendship. Why do you care? You bring me news, Win. Brunner stopped short, aware that Drizzt had cornered him. But the drow didn't press the issue any further. So the friends watched in silence as the lights of Bryn Shander went down one by one. Despite his outward callousness, Brunner realized how true some of the drow's accusations had rung. He had come to care for the people who had settled on the banks of these lakes. What do you mean to do, then? The dwarf asked at length. I mean to warn them, Drizzt replied. You underestimate your neighbors, Brunner. They're made of tougher stuff than you believe. Agreed, said the dwarf. But my questions are their character. Every day we see fighting on the lakes, and always over the damned fish. People cling to their own towns, and goblins take the others for all they care. Now they're to show me in mind that they're the will to fight together? Drizzt had to admit the truth of Brunner's observations. The fishermen had grown more competitive over the last couple of years, as the knucklehead trout took to the deeper waters of the lakes and become harder to catch. Cooperation among the towns was at a low point as each town tried to gain an economic advantage over the rival towns on its lake. There is a council in Bryn Shander in two days, Driz continued. I believe that we still have some time before the barbarians come, though I fear for any delays. I do not believe that we will be able to bring the spokesmen together any sooner. It will take me that long to properly instruct Regis of the course of action that he must take with his peers. He must carry the tidings of the coming invasion. Rumblebelly, snorted Brunner, 
His name he had tagged on Regis for the halfling's insatiable appetite. He sits on the council for no better reason than to keep his stomach well stocked. They'll hear him less than they'd hear yourself, elf. You underestimate the halfling, more so ever than you underestimate the people of Ten Towns, answered Drizzt. Remember always that he carries the stone. Bah, a fine-cut gem, but no more, Bruner insisted. I've seen it myself, and it holds no spell on me. The magic is too subtle for the eyes of a dwarf, and perhaps not strong enough to penetrate your thick skull, laughed Drizzt. But it is there. I see it clearly, and know the legend of such a stone. Regis may be able to influence the council more than you would believe, and certainly more than I could. Let us hope so, for you know as well as I that some of the spokesmen might be reluctant to pursue any plan of unity, whether in their arrogant independence or in their belief that a barbarian raid upon some of the less protected rivals might actually help their own selfish ambitions. Brinshend remains the key, but the principal city will only be spurred to action if the major fishing towns, Targos in particular, join in. You know that East Haven will help, said Bruner. There are ever ones for bringing all the towns together. And Lonelywood, too, with Regis speaking for them. But Kemp of Targos surely believes that his walled city is powerful enough to stand alone, whereas its rival, Tourmaline, would be hard-pressed to hold back that horde. He's not likely to join anything that includes Tourmaline, and you're in for more trouble than Drow, for without Kemp, you'll never get Koenig and Denevil to shut up. But that is where Regis comes in, Drizzt explained. The ruby he possesses can do wondrous things, I assure you. Again, you speak of the power of that stone. But Rumblebilly claims that his master old had twelve of those things, he reasoned. Mighty magics don't come in dozens. Regis said that his master had twelve similar stones, Driz corrected. In truth, the halfling had no way of knowing if all twelve, or if any of the others, were magical. Then why would a man have given the only one of power to Rumblebilly? Driz left that question unanswered but his silence soon led Bruner to the same inescapable conclusion. Regis had a way of collecting things that didn't belong to him, even though he explained the stone as a gift. Chapter 6 Bryn Shander Bryn Shander was unlike any of the other communities of Ten Towns. Its proud pennant flew high from atop of a hill in the middle of a dry tundra between the three lakes, just south of the southern tip of the Dwarven Valley. No ships flew the flags of this city, and it had no docks on any of the lakes. Yet there was little argument that it was not only the geographical hub of the region, but the center of activity as well. This was where the major merchant caravans from Luskin put in, where the dwarves came to trade, and where the vast majority of craftsmen, scrimshanders, and scrimshaw evaluators were housed. Proximity to Bryn Shander was second only to the quantity of fish hooked in determining the success and the size of a fishing town. Thus, Tourmaline and Targos on the southeastern banks of Mare Dalton, and Caer Koenig and Caer Dinevel on the western shores of Lac Dinishur, four towns less than a day's journey from the principal city, were the dominant towns on the lakes. High walls surrounded Bryn Shander, 
as much protection from the biting wind as from invading goblins or barbarians. Inside, the buildings were similar to those of the other towns, low wooden structures, except that in Bryn Shander they were more tightly packed together and often subdivided to house several families. Congested as it was, though, there was a measure of comfort and security in the city, the largest taste of civilization the person could find for four hundred long and desolate miles. Regis always enjoyed the sounds and smells that greeted him when he walked through the iron-bound wooden gates on the northern wall of the principal city. Though on a smaller scale, the great cities of the south, the bustle and shouts of Bryn Shander's open markets and plentiful street vendors reminded him of his days back in Calimport. And, as in Calimport, the people of Bryn Shander streets were a cross-section of every heritage that the realms had to offer— Tall, dark-skinned desert folks mingled among fair-skinned travelers from the moonshays. The loud boasts of swarthy southerners and robust mountain men trading fanciful tales of love and battle in one of the many taverns echoed on nearly every street corner. And Regis took it all in, for though the location was changed, the noise remained the same. If he closed his eyes as he skipped along down one of the narrow streets, he could almost recapture the zest for life that he'd known those years before in Calimport. This time, though, the halfling's business was so grave that it dampened even his ever-lifted spirits. He'd been horrified at the drow's grim news, and was nervous about being the messenger who would deliver it to the council. Away from the noisy market section of the city, Regis passed the palatial home of Cassius, the spokesman of Bryn Shander. This was the largest and most luxurious building in all of Ten Towns, with a column front and bas-relief artwork adorning all of its walls. It had originally been built for the meetings of the ten spokesmen, but as interest in the councils had died away, Cassius, skilled in diplomacy and not above using strong-arm tactics, had appropriated the palace as his official residence and moved the council hall to a vacant warehouse tucked away in a remote corner of the city. Several of the other spokesmen had complained about the change, but though the fishing towns could often exert some influence on the principal city in matters of public concern, they had little recourse in an issue as trivial to the general populace as this. Cassius understood the city's position well, and knew how to keep most of the other communities under his thumb. The militia of Bryn Shander could defeat the combined forces of any five of the other nine towns combined, and Cassius's officers held a monopoly on connections to the necessary marketplace to the south. The other spokesmen might grumble about the change in the meeting place, but their dependence on the principal city would prevent them from taking any actions against Cassius. Regis was the last to enter the small hall. He looked around to the nine men who had gathered at the table and realized how out of place he truly was. He had been elected spokesman because nobody else in Lonelywood cared enough and wanted to sit on the council, but his peers had attained their positions through valorous and heroic deeds. They were the leaders of their communities, the men who had organized the structure and defenses of the towns. Each of these spokesmen had seen a score of battles and more, for goblins and barbarians raiders descended upon ten towns more often than in sunny days. It was a simple rule of life in Icewind Dale, that if you couldn't fight, you couldn't survive, and the spokesmen of the council were some of the most proficient fighters in all of ten towns. Regis had never been intimidated by the spokesman before because normally he had nothing else to say at the council. Lonelywood, a secluded town hidden away in a small, thick wood of fir trees, asked for nothing from anyone. And, with an insignificant fishing fleet, the other three towns it shared Merodolden with imposed no demands upon it. 
Regis never offered an opinion unless pressed, and had been careful always to cast his vote on an issue in a way of the general consensus. And if the council was split on an issue, Regis simply followed the lead of Cassius. In ten towns, one couldn't go wrong by following Bryn Shander. This day, though, Regis found that he was intimidated by the council. The grim news that he bore would make him vulnerable to the bullying tactics and often angry reprisals. He focused his attention on the two most powerful spokesmen, Cassius of Bryn Shander and Kemp of Targos, as they sat at the head of the rectangular table and chatted. Kemp looked that part of rugged frontiersman, not too tall but barrel-chested, with gnarled and knotted arms and a stern demeanor that frightened friend and foe alike. Cassius, though, hardly seemed a warrior. He was small of frame with neatly trimmed gray hair and a face that never showed a hint of beard stubble. His big, bright blue eyes forever seemed locked into an inner contentment. But anyone who had ever seen the spokesman from Bryn Chander raise a sword in battle or maneuver his charge on the field had no doubts concerning his fighting prowess or his bravery. Regis truly liked the man, yet he was careful not to fall into a situation that left him vulnerable. Cassius had earned a reputation for getting what he wanted at another's expense. "'Come to order,' Cassius commanded, rapping his gravel on the table. The host spokesman always opened the meeting with the formalities of order, reading of titles and official proposals that had originally been intended to give the council an aura of importance, impressing especially the ruffians that sometimes showed up to speak for the more remote communities. But now, with the degeneration of the council as a whole, the formalities of order served only to delay the ending of the meeting, to the regret of all of Ten Town's spokesmen. Consequently, the formalities were pared down more and more each time the group gathered, and there had even been talk of eliminating them altogether. When the list had finally been completed, Cassius turned to the important issues. The first item on the agenda, he said, hardly glancing at the notes that were laid out before him, concerns the territorial disputes between the sister cities, Caer Konig and Caer Denable on Lac Denishire. I see that Dorum Lugar of Caer Kenig has brought the documents that he promised at the last meeting, so I turn the floor over to him. Spokesman Luger? Dorum Luger, a gaunt, dark-complected man whose eyes never seemed to stop darting about nervously, nearly leaped out of his chair when he was introduced. I, I have in my hand, he yelled, his unprepared fist closed about an old parchment, the original agreement between Caer Konig and Caer Denival, signed by the leaders of each town. He shot an accusing finger in the direction of the spokesman from Caer Denival, including your own signature, Jensen Brent. An agreement signed during a time of friendship and in spirit of goodwill, retorted Jensen Brent, a younger golden-haired man with an innocent face that often gave him an advantage over people who judged him naive. Unroll the parchment, spokesman Luger, and let the council view it. They shall see that it makes no provisions whatsoever for East Haven. He looked around at the other spokesman. East Haven could hardly be called even a hamlet when the agreement to divide the lake in half was signed, he explained, and not for the first time. They had not a single boat to put in the water. Fellow spokesman, Dorum Luger yelled, jolting some of them from lethargy that had already begun to creep in. This same debate had dominated the last four councils with no ground gained by either side. The issue held little importance or interest for any but the two spokesmen and the spokesman from East Haven. 
Surely Kerr Koenig cannot be blamed for the rise of East Haven, pleaded Dorham Luger. Who could have foreseen the East Haven way? he asked, referring to the straight and smooth road that East Haven had constructed to Bryn Shander. It was an ingenious move and proved a boon to the small town of the southeastern corner of Lac Dinesher. Combining the appeal of a remote community with the easy access to Bryn Shander had made East Haven the fastest growing community in all of Ten Towns, with a fishing fleet that had swelled to nearly rival the boats of Caer Denival. Who indeed? retorted Jensen Brent, now a bit of fluster showing through on his calm facade. It is obvious that East Haven's growth has put Caer Denival in stiff competition for the southern waters of the lake, while Caer Koenig sails freely in the northern half. Yet Caer Koenig had flatly refused to renegotiate the original terms to compensate for the imbalance. We cannot prosper under such conditions. Regis knew that he had to act before the argument between Brent and Luger got out of control. Two previous meetings had been adjourned because of their volatile debates, and Regis couldn't let the council degenerate this time before he told them of the impending barbarian attack. He hesitated, having to admit to himself once again that he had no options and could not back away from this urgent mission. His haven would be destroyed if he said nothing. Although Drist had reassured him of the power he possessed, he retained his doubts about the true magic of the stone. Yet, due to his own insecurity, a trait common among little folk, Regis found himself blindly trusting in Dri's judgment. The drow was possibly the most knowledgeable person he'd ever known, with a list of experiences far beyond the tales that Regis could tell. Now was the time for action, and the halfling was determined to give the drow's plan a try. He closed his fingers around the little wooden gavel that was set out on the table before him. It felt unfamiliar to his touch, and he realized that this was the first time that he'd ever used the instrument. He tapped it lightly on the wooden table, but the others were intent on the shouting match that had erupted between Luger and Brent. Regis reminded himself of the urgency of the drow's news once again, and boldly pounded the gravel down. The other spokesmen turned immediately to the halfling. Blank expressions stamped on their faces. Regis rarely spoke at these meetings, and then only when cornered with a direct question. Cassius of Bryn Shander brought his heavy gavel down. The council recognizes spokesman, uh, uh, the spokesman from Lonelywood, he said, and from his uneven tone, Regis could guess that he had struggled to address the halfling's request for the floor seriously. Fellow spokesman, Regis began tentatively, his voice cracking into a squeak. With all due respect to the seriousness of the debate between the spokesman from Caer Denival and Caer Koenig, I believe that we have a more urgent problem to discuss. Jensen Brent and Dorham Luger were livid at being interrupted, but the others eyed the halfling curiously. Good start, Regis thought. I've got their full attention. He cleared his throat, trying to steady his voice and sound a bit more impressive. I have learned beyond doubt that the barbarian tribes are gathering for a united attack on ten towns. Though he tried to make the announcement dramatic, Regis found himself facing nine apathetic and confused men. Unless we form an alliance, Regis continued in the same urgent tones, the horde will overrun our communities one by one, slaughtering any who dare to oppose them. Certainly spokesman Regis of Lonelywood, said Cassius in a voice he meant to be calming, but was, in effect, condescending. We have weathered barbarian raids before, 
There is no need for, not like this one, Regis cried. All of the tribes have come together. The raids before matched one tribe against one city, and usually we fared well. But how would Tourmaline, or Kerkonig, or even Bryn Shander stand against the combined tribes of Icewind Dale? Some of the spokesmen settled back into their chairs to contemplate the halfling's words. The rest began talking amongst themselves, some in distress, some in angry disbelief. Finally, Cassius pounded his gavel again, calling the hall to silence. Then, with familiar bravado, Kemp of Targo slowly rose from his seat. "'May I speak, friend Cassius?' he asked with unnecessary politeness. "'Perhaps I might be able to put this grave pronouncement in the proper light.' Regis and Drizzt had made some assumptions about alliances when they'd planned the halfling's actions at the council. They knew that East Haven, founded and thrived by the principal brotherhood among the communities of ten towns, would openly embrace the concept of common defense against the barbarian horde. Likewise, Tourmaline and Lonelywood, the two most accessible and raided towns of the ten, would gladly accept any offers of help. Yet even spokesman Argawal of Tourmaline, who would gain so much from a defensive alliance, would hedge and hold his silence if Kemp of Targos refused to accept the plan. Targos was the largest and mightiest of the nine fishing villages, with a fleet more than twice the size of the second largest. "'Fellow members of the council,' Kemp began, leaning forward over the table to loom larger in the eyes of his peers, "'let us learn more of the halfling's tale before we begin to worry.' We have fought off barbarian invaders, and worse enough times to be confident that the defenses of even the smallest of our towns are adequate. Regis felt his tension growing as Kemp rolled into his speech, building on points designed to destroy the halfling's credibility. Drizzt had decided early on in their planning that Kemp of Targos was the key, but Regis knew the spokesman better than the drow, and knew that Kemp would not easily be manipulated. Kemp illustrated the tactics of the powerful town of Targos in his own mannerisms. He was large and bullying, often taking the sudden fits of violent rage that intimidated even Cassius. Regis had tried to steer Drizzt away from this part of their plan, but the drow was adamant. If Targos agrees to accept the alliance with Lonelywood, Drizzt had reasoned, Tourmaline will gladly join and Bremen, being the only other village on the lake, will have no choice but to go along. Bryn Shander will certainly not oppose a unified alliance of the four towns on the largest and most prosperous lake, and East Haven will make six in the pact, a clear majority. The rest would have no choice but to join in the effort. Drizzt had believed that Kerr Dinnable and Kerr Koenig, fearing that East Haven would receive special consideration in future councils, would put on a blusterous show of loyalty, hoping themselves to gain favor in the eyes of Cassius. Goodmead and Dugan's Hole, the two towns on Redwaters, though, relatively safe from the invasion from the north, would not dare to stand apart from the other eight communities. But all of this was merely hopeful speculation, as Regis clearly realized when he saw Kemp glaring at him from across the table. Drizzt had conceded the point that the greatest obstacle in forming the alliance would be Targos. In its arrogance, the powerful town might believe that it could withstand any barbarian raid, and if it did manage to survive, the destruction of some of its competitors might actually prove profitable. "'You say only that you've learned of an invasion,' Kemp began. 
Where could you have gathered this valuable and, no doubt, hard-to-find information? Regis felt sweat beating on his temples. He knew where Kemp's question would lead, but there was no way that he could avoid the truth. From a friend who often travels the tundra, he answered honestly. The drow? Kemp asked. With his neck bent up and Kemp towering over him, Regis found himself quickly placed on the defensive. The halfling's father had once warned him that he would always be at a disadvantage when dealing with humans because they physically had to look down when speaking to him, as they would to their own children. At times like this, the words of his father rang painfully true to Regis. He wiped a bead of moisture from his upper lip. "'I cannot speak for the rest of you,' Kemp continued." adding a chuckle to place the halfling's grave warning in an absurd light. But I have too much serious work to do to go into hiding on the words of a drow elf. Again, the burly spokesman laughed, and this time he was not alone. Argawal of Tourmaline offered some unexpected assistance to the halfling's failing cause. Perhaps we should let the spokesman from Lonelywood continue, if his words are true. His words are the echoes of drow lies. Kemp snarled. Pay them no heed. We have fought off the barbarians before, and... But then, Kemp, too, was cut short, as Regis suddenly sprang up on the council table. This was the most precarious part of Driz's plan. The drow had shown faith in it, describing it matter-of-factly, as though it would pose no problems. But Regis felt impending disaster hovering all about him. He clasped his hands behind his back and tried to appear in control so that Cassius wouldn't take any immediate actions against his unusual tactics. During Argawal's diversion, Regis had slipped the ruby pendant out from under his waistcoat. It sparkled on his chest as he walked up and down, treating the table as though it were his personal stage. "'What do you know of the drow to jest of him so?' he demanded of the others, pointedly Kemp. "'Can any of you name a single person that he has harmed?' No. You chastise him for the crimes of his race, yet have none of you ever considered that Drizduarden walks among us because he is rejected from the ways of his people? The silence in the hall convinced Regis that he had either been impressive or absurd. In any case, he was not so arrogant or foolish to think his little speech sufficient to accomplish the task. He walked over to face Kemp. This time, he was the one looking down but the spokesman from Targos seemed on the verge of exploding into laughter. Regis had to act quickly. He bent down slightly and raised his hand to his chin, by appearance to scratch an itch, though in truth to set the ruby pendant spinning, tapping it with his arm as it passed. He then held the silence of the moment patiently, and counted as Drizzt had instructed. Ten seconds passed, and Kemp had not blinked. Drizzt had said that this would be enough, but Regis... Surprised and apprehensive at the ease with which he had accomplished the task, let another ten go by before he dared begin testing the drow's beliefs. "'Surely you can see the wisdom of preparing for an attack,' Regis suggested calmly, then in a whisper that only Kemp could have heard. "'These people look for your guidance, great Kemp. A military alliance would only enhance your stature and influence.' The effect was dazzling. Perhaps there is more to the halfling's words than we first believed, Kemp said mechanically, his glazed eyes never leaving the ruby. Stunned, 
Regis straightened up and quickly slipped the stone back under his waistcoat. Kemp shook his head as though clearing a confusing dream from his thoughts, and he rubbed his dried eyes. The spokesman from Targos couldn't seem to recall the last few moments, but the halfling's suggestion was planted deeply into his mind. Kemp found, to his own amazement, that his attitudes had changed. "'We should hear well the words of Regis,' he declared loudly. "'For we shall be none the worse for forming such an alliance, yet the consequences of doing nothing may prove to be grave indeed.' Quick to seize an advantage, Jensen Brent leaped up from his chair. "'Spokesman Kemp speaks wisely,' he said. "'Number the people of Cairdinival, ever proponents of the united efforts of ten towns, among the army that shall repel the horde.' The rest of the spokesmen lined up behind Kemp, as Drist had expected, with Doram Luger making an even bigger show of loyalty than Brent's. Regis had much to be proud of when he left the council hall later that day, and his hopes for the survival of ten towns had returned. Yet the halfling found his thoughts consumed by the implications of the power he had discovered in his ruby. He worked to figure the most fail-safe way in which he could turn the newfound power of inducing cooperation into profit and comfort. So nice of the Pashapuk to give me this one, he told himself as he walked through the front gate of Bryn Shander and headed for the appointed spot where he would meet with Drizzt and Bruner.